Today's passage comes from Ruth, chapter 2, verses 10 through 20. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roast grain, and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. You may be seated. Thank you, Logan. You know, one of the worst things in life, well, maybe not one of the worst, but it feels bad when it happens. One of the worst things in life is being interrupted when you're right in the middle of something that you feel is very important. Or when the wheels fly off your day because of some unforeseen inconvenience. Sometimes, if you have hermit-like tendencies as I do, the sudden appearance of good things in the schedule that we hadn't planned on can cause you some stress. Now, I'm not talking about sudden tragedies or things like that. That's a sermon for another day. What I'm talking about today are the things that just happen in life. Each of us, or at least, well, I don't know, I guess I do. Maybe I'm, I'm rare in this, but I generally wake up with some plan for the day each day, right? And I think most of us do, right? If we go to work, we go to school, you know, we'll see such and such people, we'll do such and such a thing. Some of us may have more detailed plans than others, but I think most of us have certain expectations for how our day is going to go, beyond that, how our week is supposed to go, how our month is supposed to go, and I think a lot of us have a certain script for how our life is supposed to go. And obviously, things happen, things don't go the way we plan, but what I'm talking about today are those interruptions, not, you know, tragedies and, and things of that nature, but things that aren't necessarily bad, they just weren't what we planned on or what we expected and the question that I'm asking myself more and more lately, the question that I'm, I'm putting before us this morning, is what if God is actually at work in those surprises, those inconveniences, those interruptions? <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes, <clears throat> he has ordained praise. <laughs> what if the Lord is actually at work in those things? 
The Lord's plans are always larger than ours. We look at a certain situation, and we're not necessarily wrong about what we think he's doing. We're just uh, narrow-sighted. We're short-sighted on what exactly he's up to. There is always more going on than we think. There's a feast waiting beyond the edge of how we think life should go. And our sermon summary this morning is this. I don't think it's up on the screen. I think it's just going to be that the whole time because I ran out of time to make a PowerPoint this morning. Well, I won't tell you why, but uh, not going to throw anybody under the bus for anything. Um, (laughs) Anyway, the sermon summary this morning is leave the Lord. Another interruption, Sarah. It was another interruption that I received (laughs) as the Lord working. Anyway... Leave the Lord room to glean. That's our our sermon summary this morning. Leave the Lord room to glean. And we'll be looking, as as Logan so beautifully read for us, at a bit of the story of Ruth, who is King David's great-grandmother and ancestor of Jesus. And I submit to you that this simple story filled with faithful, generous people is a challenge and invitation for us to leave room in our time and our relationships for the Lord to do his work. And I'll say more about that in a few minutes. I mentioned this earlier, but since mid-January, we've been preaching about stories about eating. And the first six weeks was eating with Jesus, stories from the Gospels where Jesus used dinner as a way to proclaim the kingdom, to heal people, to bring people in. And we began a year-long practice of hospitality, of eating with Jesus, with people. I've had a few people over, I've been invited to a few homes, and I've been very heartened and encouraged to hear of some of the other dinner parties that are happening that I'm not invited to. I mean, I'd like to be, but you know, it's good that, it's good that people are having dinner without me. Jesus is the one that needs to be there, not Ben. <clears throat> and I urge you to keep up the good work. Have friends and folks you're comfortable with over in these next few weeks as we're still sort of in phase one of the practice. And we're doing this churchwide hospitality practice for two main reasons. The first is that, as we said over and over again, Jesus loved eating with people, and any meal is a window into his kingdom when he is invited. If we want to be like Jesus, a great way to do that is to eat with other people. And the second reason is because Calvary has strong traditions of sharing meals and serving together. And what better way to combine eating and serving than to have somebody over for dinner? And it's no coincidence that the Mennonite Relief Sale, our ultimate annual day of eating and serving, took place right as we shifted from the Eating with Jesus to the Eating with People series, which is what we've been in the last few weeks. We've been looking at these Bible stories about people eating together and the scope of God's work that a meal can represent and accomplish. If God's kingdom is like a feast, and Jesus says that it is, then inviting someone into the kingdom will look a lot like inviting someone over for dinner. We don't have to convince them that the food is going to be good. It's an invitation to come and taste, to come and experience and see what is going on. The Lord Jesus has a special anointing for Calvary as the church in Washington that eats and serves together. And that means that our efforts and outreach in sharing the good news, both as as households, as individuals, and as a church, those things are going to involve, probably, eating and doing. Everybody likes to eat. Everybody likes to feel part of something. Calvary has been, is, and will be a place where that happens and where the Holy Spirit uses eating and doing to draw men and women to faith in Jesus. 
And so we come to our passage in Ruth, chapter 2, verses 10 through 20. And in a way, and I imagine most of us are fairly familiar with the story, but also might be less familiar for some of us, so I do want to kind of go over with what the whole book. And, and there's a lot to be said for the whole book of Ruth being about eating and being satisfied. Wheat, barley, bread plays a central role in everything that goes on in the book of Ruth. It starts because of a famine, a lack of food in the land of Israel. And so an Israelite family leaves and goes to live in the neighboring country of Moab, where the sons marry local Moabite women. Then all of the men die, leaving Naomi, the mother, and her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Ruth pledges her allegiance to Naomi and Naomi's God, and the pair of them return to Bethlehem as impoverished widows. And their only option for survival at that point in history was to glean in the farmer's field, and you saw this in the passage that Ruth just goes out and does that. And this practice of gleaning is commanded twice in the book of Leviticus. And in chapter 23, Moses clarifies why. Why are they supposed to do this gleaning? And it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the, for the sojourner. I am Yahweh, your God. And in a society without any sort of welfare or social safety net, the gleaning practice allowed for the poor to provide for themselves in a way that honored their dignity as humans. The farmers didn't just hand them all this, they left it there for them to, to go and get. The ancient Israelites valued social stability and order more highly than efficiency. Do not harvest to the edge of your field. No one was supposed to be completely left behind. And so Ruth finds herself in the field of a righteous man who is careful to follow these gleaning commands. And keep in mind that not that long ago there had been a famine. So you would think that Boaz and these other farmers would actually maybe think, well, maybe we can fudge the gleaning rules a little bit just because, you know, you never know when the famine's going to strike again. Boaz doesn't do that. He leaves the edges of his fields for the poor ones to harvest. Boaz, wealthy landowner and I presume a busy man, notices this young Moabite woman gleaning at the edge of his field and learns that it is the daughter-in-law of Naomi who is a relative of his. He promises Ruth that she will be protected and provided for in his fields. And this is where our verses pick up. Ruth hears this and she falls to the ground. Ruth and Naomi realize that Boaz is in line to inherit Naomi's husband's estate. That society in that day and age, the women couldn't inherit things for the most part, and so they were kind of in limbo until a man came along to rescue them. There's a lot there that we're not going to touch this morning. The point is, is that they realize that Boaz is their redeemer. He is the one who's legally uh, obligated, really, to, to uh, buy the estate and care for them. The tension of the plot arises... And a friend of mine pointed out once that Ruth is one of those rare stories that it's compelling, but it doesn't actually have a villain. Which is like, oh, that's true. There really isn't a villain in Ruth. But the sort of, he's not really a villain. He's not a bad guy. But the tension arises when they find out that actually there is some other guy in front of Boaz who actually has uh, first rights to redeem the estate. But together, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz work the system in a way that the other redeemer relinquishes his claim. Boaz and Ruth are married and Naomi, who started the book hungry and bitter, ends fulfilled and satisfied. And we're told right there at the end, you can look at Ruth chapter 4 if you want, 
in this sort of kind of, oh, by the way, like it's literally the last few verses, that Ruth and Boaz are King David's grandparents. And there's been not a word about any of that this whole time in the story of Ruth until the very end. And suddenly this little story about farmers, widows, and wheat shuffled between the insane barbarity of judges, the war and politics of 1 and 2 Samuel finds its place in the story that Yahweh is telling and the ways he is fulfilling his promises to humankind. And one of the reasons I love the book of Ruth is because you don't expect it to be there. The Bible is full, well, it's full of a lot of things, but it's full of monsters, battles, heroes and angels, epic floods, raging kings, miracles. I think we tend to think that God only works in the huge and the fantastic. And when we expect him to work, we're expecting something huge and fantastic. But Ruth challenges that idea. It's kind of like the Lord presses the pause button on all the craziness and the warfare and says, look here, this is how I work in the lives of most people. This is how I work in yours, quietly, gently, through the kindness and faithfulness of others. And I draw that out because I think it's a struggle sometimes, if we're honest, to see our own lives included in what God is up to in the world. There's a disconnect between most of what we read in the Bible or what we expect to happen and our actual day-to-day lives, but not with the book of Ruth. Loss, family, grief, hunger, kindness, generosity, farming, eating, making deals, having hope. This is the kind of stuff we do every day. God is at work in the ordinary and the common. No life is exempt from the story that he is telling. And just like Boaz, we will often find that his greatest gifts, his abundant feast, are waiting not in the center of whatever we think it is that he's doing in our lives, but actually over on the edges in the place of interruption, disappointment, waiting, and inconvenience. Ruth demonstrates faith and a willingness to follow when she pledges her life to Naomi and Naomi's God that really is echoed later by Peter, James, and the other disciples of Jesus. I will follow you until the day I die. When Ruth married Naomi's son back when they first moved out to Moab, none of anything that was going to happen later was part of her script. Ruth did not expect her husband to die. But Ruth went with Naomi beyond the edge of where her life was supposed to go, and she found herself gleaning in the fields of Boaz. And Boaz embodies the kindness, faithfulness, welcome towards foreigners of the Lord himself. He tells Ruth in verse 12 that she has come to Israel and has taken refuge under Yahweh's wings, but it is Boaz who actually protects her from harassment and provides for her needs. And that's not to say that the Lord wasn't Ruth's shelter. He was. But it is to say that the Lord sheltered Ruth through the actions and the kindness and the generosity of Boaz. And I think that Boaz understood that. He was acting as God would act. Jesus walked in the same manner of life as his great, 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 a million times great grandmother and grandfather, Ruth and Boaz. Jesus also pledged himself to us, to the humankind, unto death and beyond it. Jesus also noticed the people at the edges, and I'll say more about that in a minute. I think that Jesus 
is our ultimate kinsman redeemer, this figure whose job it is to come and to rescue and to save us in the middle of our plight. Each of us in our sin wanders through famine-stricken lands. We dwell on the edge, the poor ones of the cosmos, surviving on scraps. The good news is that Jesus noticed us at the edge and gave his own life on the cross for our redemption. The book of Hebrews says this, Since therefore the children, men and women, share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear to death were subject to lifelong slavery. Like Boaz's invitation to Ruth, Jesus takes each one of us and says, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. The thing you're looking for, the thing you've lost, the love and safety and family you deeply need, it's here at my table. I think the invitation for us this morning is to leave the Lord room to glean in our lives. And while some of us are actually farmers, I don't think any of us are responsible to physically leave a few rows of corn or beans or what have you standing so that disadvantaged folks can go and get it. But I think that we can take the gleaning practice and apply it to many spheres of our lives. I'm only going to talk about a few this morning. Leaving the Lord room to glean means to look for him at the edges, in the gap between our expectations or plans and reality. And there are two specific forms that I want to touch on. Leaving room in your time and leaving room in your relationships. And in my own experience, and I think it might, it's probably different for many of us, but those of you who are like me, my own experience, when I'm in a hurry, when I'm incredibly busy, part of, or feel incredibly busy, part of what's happening there is that I am uh, trying to be my own God and Lord over my life. If I can just do all the things, then something, then I'll be saved, then my life will go the way I want it to go. I forget that my standing with God is not secured because of what I do, or whether or not I meet all my deadlines, or whether or not the house is clean when people come over, or, you know, it goes on and on. Leaving the Lord room to glean in your time means not trying to fill every hour with activity. And I think especially accepting interruptions for what they are. People at the edges trying to catch your attention. Now, while Jesus had plenty to do, he never seemed to be in a hurry. He was always on his way. And you'll notice there's a lot of stories where Jesus is on his way from one place to another, and he gets stopped at some point along that route. Oftentimes, the disciples try and hurry the other person along and go, no, 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 he doesn't have any time for you. Jesus had plenty to do. He never seemed to be in a hurry. And because of that, he noticed people at the edges. Zacchaeus up in a tree, the woman with chronic bleeding who tried to stay hidden in the crowds, these other people that he would just walk by and know that what their problem was and speak to them. Part of that was, you know, he was God, but I think that part of that also is just that he gave the Lord room in his time. He wasn't so busy or so hurried that he zipped by 
all these other things. Even Jesus himself knew that the Father was up to more than whatever Jesus' plans for his day were. So that's leaving time or leaving room in our time. I also encourage you to leave room in your relationships. We all have a social network, a group of people that uh, we know well and that we see frequently. Family and friends, uh, potentially, you know, others, but, you know, the people that we see all the time and know well. And then there is a larger network of people that we see fairly regularly but don't know that well and don't necessarily want to talk to, not in a bad way, but again, if you're like me, you see somebody you sort of know out in public, my intuition is to try and not talk to them. That that may be bad, but uh, I'm not up here because I'm perfect. Um, Coworkers, neighbors, extended family, other people at church, the families of your kids' friends, We all know this larger group of of people. The Lord already has the people around the edges of your life that he wants you to notice and introduce to him. We were talking about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning, that often when we talk about having spiritual conversations or being a witness, we sort of imagine these hypothetical pagans that we haven't met yet that we have to go tell about the Lord. No, 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 no. Every now and then, some of us are granted an opportunity to do that, But for the most part, the Lord already has the people in your life. You already know them that you are supposed to be a witness and a light to. And the final stage of our hospitality practice, which will take place uh, later next fall, is to have acquaintances over for dinner. We talked about this a little bit a few months ago, but I'm telling you again. Not strangers, because that would be weird. And uh, I know Matthew and I have talked, and the deacons, when we've talked about these things, have talked about, like, how would you actually go about inviting a na- even somebody who's a neighbor, but the, whom you don't know? There's no way for that to not be creepy, at least in my opinion. <laughs> like, hey, you and your kids want to come over? I don't know. It's just, there's just no way for that to not be strange. Again, maybe you know something I don't, but we're not saying we're inviting strangers over, and there's good, wise reasons to not <laughs> do that a lot, but people we already know, people we actually already have some form of a relationship with, we just don't know very well. And I imagine that final stage is going to be the hardest. I think it's going to be the hardest for me. But I urge you to be praying and thinking about who you could have over. If nobody comes to mind, you don't have any acquaintances, well, I have very good news for you. The Lord is inviting you today to make room in your relationships so that you have some acquaintances to invite over for dinner next fall. In the meantime, it's good for all of us to remember that we have no accidental neighbors, either people who actually live next to us, work next to us, go to school next to us. God never gets the address wrong. Ruth 2 2, verse 3 says that Ruth happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. We know it was not a coincidence. Ruth didn't know where she was gleaning. Boaz didn't know she was going to be there. But the Lord knew exactly what he was doing when he led Ruth to that field that day. And one of the ways that I have left room for the Lord to glean, and this example is now like seven years old, so, you know, I'm still working on it, but uh, is that I decided, I made a decision when I went to college at the U of I that I wasn't going to choose roommates. I was going to let the random roommate assignment system send me some uh, poor soul who was going to have to live with me for a year. My freshman year roommate uh, was not a great situation for a variety of reasons that I, that I won't go into. 
Uh, he just was, he was nice, but he had some life to, lifestyle decisions that were uh, too bad. And that nearly convinced me to abandon my random roommate scheme. Because like, well, this is what it's going to be like. I don't know if I, ugh, anyway. <laughs> Sophomore year, my roommate kept mostly to himself, played a lot of video games, uh, and then moved out <laughs> the second semester. I don't know what that means. but uh, So it wasn't really bad, but it also wasn't really great. But my junior year, I had as a roommate a young man named Ding Jong, and many of you have met him, or were in church the Sunday he was baptized in April of 2012. I'm so glad. I didn't really want to, and I'm glad that there was some counsel in my life that said, no, you, you, ought, to, you ought to keep subjecting yourself to this uh, terror, Ben. But I'm so glad that I, I really am, that I continued to obey the Lord, and I kept rolling the dice with these random roommates, because I probably would have never met Ding otherwise. Now, when I didn't first meet Ding, I could not and did not foresee that he would come to faith in the Lord, that our friendship would be so strong, that his parents would be my first financial supporters when I went to live in China. Boaz, I assume, did not immediately look at that foreign woman and go, I'm going to wind up marrying her. And he certainly did not foresee that one of their great-grandsons was going to be the Messiah and the Savior of the world. Church, we cannot see all of the Lord's purposes, especially in a time or relationships that appear trivial. Leave the Lord room to glean. Notice the people at the edges and extend the invitation to join Jesus' feast. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good day. And Lord, we do thank you for the example of Ruth and Boaz and, and really the example of the Lord that we have. Lord Jesus, all of us have different hang-ups about talking to people we don't really know. It is difficult and it can be awkward. Lord, we pray that you would grant us the eyes to see the men and women around us that you want us to engage, that you want us to become better friends with. Lord, to extend your love and your kindness and your generosity to them, not knowing what's going to come of it. Lord, I pray that we would be willing to take risks in our relationships and the giving up of our time. Father, I pray that you would continue to grant each of us grace and courage. In Jesus' name, amen.